This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me here on AHP. I hope you're all doing well uh, during this coronavirus uh, issue. A lot of people can't go hunting in the moment, which is uh, extremely disappointing. We can't get shooting at our ranges. But, guys, all I can say is let's keep it positive and let's hope we can get out uh, and shoot very, very soon. And for those that still are able to shoot, you lucky bastards, because (laughs) everything I want to do, including public land hunting and the ranges, are closed. So... I'm pretty much stuck here at home, just doing some reloading, but uh, getting everything sorted for the 7mm Rem Mag and the 300 Win Mag. Can't wait to get them out and uh, have a shoot of those. I think it's going to be awesome uh, with the new loads. Going on from that, I really appreciate everyone listening to the last couple of straight shootings. I did receive a lot of emails uh, from people wanting to get the straight shooting back on. So this time I did a few with Justin as well, trying to get a few new people, not just Muzz as well. Uh, So guys, I hope you enjoyed that, getting a lot of downloads and some good responses on social media. So I want to thank you for uh, tuning into those episodes of Straight Shooting. Of course, if you want to write in, please do. You can go on the website. Uh, and click on the contact form, or you can just email me at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, if you want to be on the show, just give me a call, 0425 if you've got any questions. And for straight shooting, if you want to leave a voicemail, just go to that website, australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Uh, you'll see on the right-hand side in the slider bar, you will see uh, the leave voicemail. I think they're 90 seconds, and a lot of people have been writing in, uh, sending in their voicemails and things like that uh, for us to play on the show. So do that. I think, as I said, I think it's 90 seconds Uh, if you've got more than one question just send multiple but uh, if you can keep them under 90 seconds that would be great and uh, thanks to all the people that have sent in voicemails I really do appreciate it and I know sometimes guys I don't get back to emails but I always talk about them on the show I'm trying to get better at that I get a lot of emails so sometimes it's difficult you know as I work full-time to respond to everyone but I try and do my best but listen to the show if you've written in, listen to Straight Shooting. No doubt you'll hear uh, your emails on the show. And if you don't hear it on the next show, it'll probably be on the ones after that because I can only do so many. But uh, talking about today's show, actually, we're going to be talking with Graham Bishop from Taranaki Long Range Shooters. Now, it's not just long range shooting, guys. This is long range shooting and hunting. But also, what I want to concentrate on is a lot of people talk about a lot of costs. I get a lot of emails, people saying, well, it's too expensive to get into long range shooting, long range hunting. They want to stretch out the legs of their rifles what do they do so today i guess with graham really going to concentrate on just your standard off-the-shelf rifles what people need to do to get better success with their off-the-shelf rifle whether that's a howler whether that's a ruger a ticker um, i got a new bagara so i'm looking forward to shooting that so let's say it's a bagara can be any specific rifle cz you name it you want to get the best out of your rifle we're going to talk about off-the-shelf rifles and long-range shooting and hunting and what you can do uh, to get better Topics including uh, optics, including uh, stocks you might need to use, if anything at all, reloading, uh, things like muzzle brakes as well. Depends on what country you're in, suppressors. Now, Graham is from New Zealand, so those lucky bastards over there get to use suppressors. We're going to talk about sporter versus varmint barrels, barrel lengths, uh, and pretty much everything in between. We'll uh, see how we go because we've got a lot of questions here. We're probably going to go down the rabbit hole uh, on a lot of questions and uh, you can check out Graham on his Instagram page and Facebook Taranaki Long Range Shooters or go to taranakilongrangeshooters.com uh,
www.thegreatlakes.com. Just wanted to thank everyone that's uh, supported the show, written into the show. Really do appreciate it. Like I said before, if you want to join us on Patreon, I know it's not the time, guys, to be asking for you know Patreon money and those types of things. So if you can't join me on Patreon, as long as you share the show on sh- social media, share it with your friends and family, uh, I'd really, really appreciate it. If you do want to support me, I know it's difficult times, go to patreon.com forward slash AHB. I've had a few people come on just recently, which is absolutely fantastic. So I want to thank all you guys on Patreon. You know who you are, and uh, you guys are the reason I keep doing this show. Uh, it's been nine and a half years, and in February or March of 2021, it'll be a decade that I've been doing this show, the longest running hunting and shooting fishing podcast in Australia, bar none. Uh, 10 years, guys, a decade. I just can't believe it. So thank you all that's have uh, helped me over the years uh, with voicemails, emails, sharing the show, supporting me on Patreon, uh, running ads on the show. You know, I really, really appreciate it. And uh, if you want to contact me for any reason, australianhuntingpodcast.gmail.com uh, or just give us a buzz. So I think what we should do is probably get into the show with uh, Graham Bishop. All right, Graham Bishop, welcome to AHP. Thanks for joining me, mate. I really appreciate it and uh, accepting my offer to come on the show. Thanks. Hey, well, thanks for having me on, mate. I'm uh, quite excited to sort of have a, have a yak and sort of compare how we do things in New Zealand and Australia. Should be good. Perfect. Have you actually? Interesting question. Have you been on any podcasts before? Because it seems that most people have done recently. It seems to be their first podcast. Even some of these larger YouTube guys, and that's uh, it's their first podcast. So please tell me it's your first. <laughs> uh, not quite my first. I did one several years ago with um, Precision Shooter, another New Zealand-based. Um, Right. Shooting sort of forum thing, yeah. Oh, that's all right. Then it'll be the second one. Then no problem, mate. I guess tell us about yourself, man. Where you're from? What do you do? And uh, just a bit of background about yourself, mate. Uh, yeah. So as you said, I'm uh, my name's Graham Bishop. I live on the west coast of the North Island of New Zealand in a region called Taranaki. Yeah, I work in the with local oil and gas industry as a day job, and then sort of in my spare time, I I do a lot of shooting and hunting. And I've probably been hunting and shooting for maybe seriously for maybe the last. 10 years thereabouts um, and then before that just intermittently as I was growing up um, but uh, it was never really a passion when I was young so more so when I was older yeah yeah how did you how did you get into it as a family members I mean how old are you now if you don't mind me asking uh, I'm nearly 30 29 30 um, again I grew up rural um, and my, my parents weren't overly into firearms no, nothing against them they just weren't into it so we had 22s and shotguns um, for agricultural use. Uh, but my grandfather, who lived across the road, he was mad on um, sort of shooting possums and rabbits and uh, feral pigs and, and sort of anything that was running around that they didn't want on the farm. So I used to go occasionally with him, and so that's where I learnt my sort of basic um, rifle safety and and all of that kind of thing. Um, but then sort of once my grandfather passed away when I was young, it sort of fell by the wayside um, until I was... Yeah, maybe 18 or 19. And then um, my wife, my now wife, um, so then girlfriend, she was a competitive small ball shooter. And um, and at the time, I was a bow, I did a lot of bow hunting. And then she got her firearms license, and I thought, hey, that might be a bit more efficient for sort of um, shooting game. And so I, I got my license, and I bought a rifle, and uh, the bow quickly got thrown to the back of the cupboard because I was able to harvest a lot more animals a lot faster and without losing a lot of arrows. And then, yeah, that sort of started the whole thing, to be honest. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting how the culture changes from, you know, Australia to New Zealand because, you know, over here, you know, we get a lot of crap for being, you know, shooters and hunters, but it seems to be, 
you know, a rich you know, cultural heritage sort of in New Zealand about people, you know, hunting is an accepted pastime compared to sort of what it is in Australia. People say, oh, we shoot over here. They're like, ugh, you know, compared to over there, it yeah. seems to be hugely accepted. Uh, it depends where you are, I, I guess, to a certain um, things. So like the major cities, so we've got sort of three major cities, it's not nearly as popular. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's a lot of people who like to do it, but again, it is frowned upon. Um, and people don't like rifle ranges and, they think um, you should buy your meat from the supermarket and all that, but in the in the, <laughs> the regions of, of New Zealand, um, it, yeah, it is still a big part of a lot of people's life. And uh, the indigenous people in New Zealand, the Maori, they love hunting for the most part because they've always done it. And um, yeah, it's just part of everybody's culture now that we're all sort of mixed together. Um, so yeah, it, I would say it's more accepted than Australia. Um, although we've had, obviously, as you know, we've had a lot of anti-gun sort of stuff over the last year. Um, which is, so it's getting a little bit different, but exactly. But. I always tell people because you know we won't go into what happened last year, but uh, you know yeah. Auss- Aussies—they're good people. They're not like that arsehole that uh, did what he did a couple of years ago. So oh yeah, no, you can't. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, they sort of we all got tarred with that brush when that happened, as shooters. So, um, yeah. But anyway, but yeah. So apart from that, it, it's yeah. Most people are quite accepting. Um, like if you're a hunter, they'll ask you to bring venison to barbecues, and or you know if they know, oh yep, he he does a lot of um sort of shooting and sport shooting and hunting, he can come and clear out the rabbits and um yeah, it's it's generally seen as a trusted person if you've got a firearms license. At least that's how I see it. You know, you've got to be vetted by police, and similar to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What about any other, you know, uh, shooting activities, long-range shooting? Obviously, we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but do you partake in any other shooting disciplines, you know, it's like play targets, maybe some pistols or range uh, disciplines or anything like that? Or uh, Yeah, a little bit. Um, I'm very keen on 22 shooting, uh, but more 22 shooting that emulates long-range. So it would be like long-range 22, so um, in, in competitive sort of sense, about 200 metres, and then whether you watch my stuff on um Facebook, I do a lot of like long, extreme long range 22 shooting just for fun. Uh, and then I did shoot a bit of small bore many years ago, um, again with my wife um, and her father. But that sort of fell by the wayside as well. Um, and I used to shoot a bit of pistol stuff. I, I shot a bit of cowboy action shooting um, and, and all that. And then one other thing that I still do is quite reasonably popular, especially in the region I'm in, is. Um, hunter style shoots so it's sort of whether you'd have anything in Australia like this so you've got your hunting rifle is the idea and then you'll have a um, on a farm with some hills and some bush and that on it there'll be a course of fire made so six or seven stages and there'll be steel targets maybe out to 250-350 metres and there might even be like a close paper target at 10 metres or whatever and it's sort of like you know what you guys shoot PRS and that it's kind of like Similar thing, you have a squad and rules, but it's hunting guns and close distance. And the idea is to sort of emulate hunting scenarios, um, but with steel targets. Uh, the idea making you a better shooter. So when the that odd situation you get yourself in when you're hunting, you sort of have some experience and you can deal with it and um, and harvest your game. You know, so. Yeah, those those are the main sort. Of, that's the main one apart from long range shooting I do now. So it's hunter style events. Yeah, is that PRS? I mean, it's sort of popping uh, up no, over no, here. It's, to be... it's not. It's yeah, it's hard. I, I doubt 
because you guys have to. I'm pretty sure you, you guys have to shoot on ranges, don't you? You can't have events on farms. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a yeah, funny so, one. So what here, it is, yeah. it, it, it's 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 not PRS. The only way I can, the only reason I brought that up is because you're in squads in a similar way. So you'll have a you'll be squatted up, say half a dozen guys in your squad, and you'll move around to six different stages on a but on a farm, so not a static range, and you'll use the terrain and the foliage and everything to just try and replicate sort of hunting yeah. shots we might shoot two or three or four or five rounds um, at several targets. Yeah, so it's hard to explain for, I don't think, I've never really seen anything like this outside of New Zealand, to be honest. Um, yeah. It's cool. It's good fun, though, because, yeah, you don't you don't necessarily need those big long ranges. Um, and, you, you know, some of the targets might be partially obscured by shrubbery, um, so you can clearly see them, but if you shoot through the shrubs, your bullet gets deflected and you don't hit them. It's, it seems to be picking up a fair bit over here, the PRS. Do they do comps over there in New Zealand? Uh, I wouldn't call it P- PRS in New Zealand. So I am reasonably involved in it because I organise some events. Um, especially, you've sort of got, you've got two islands in New Zealand and, and they do several events down south in the South Island and we do stuff up here in the North Island and ours is a bit different from theirs. Um, we, we call it practical field shooting. So it's, there's a hint of precision rifle series sort of barricades and, and that in it, but we'd much rather say, because we shoot on private property instead of ranges, we might have a big, big like a hill. You'd call it a mountain in Australia. We'll call it a hill. So instead of, <laughs> instead of shooting off like the flat part of the track on the hill, we'll put you over the side down in a rut or something. So it's a really uncomfortable position. And so same thing, you've got that, same as Paris, you've got a stage description, you've got uh, several targets out to various distances, and they're all numbered, and you've got to shoot them in a certain order or, or not, and and go. And then you've got to sort of start in this horrible position and try, you know, build a position to shoot from and, and yeah, and try and use the terrain, or, or we use the terrain to make your shooting harder, if that makes sense. So rather than only barricades and... Um, and all those sorts of things. If we can use trees or terrain, we'll use that rather than a... Yeah, so it's similar but different. It's got its own sort of Kiwi spin on it. Yeah, it seems a bit... Uh, when we're shooting on pub, uh, private land here, I should say, uh, can be a bit difficult depending on which uh, you know which state you're in, whether you can even shoot targets. My state is a little bit stricter on you know what constitutes sort of you know shooting and zeroing your rifle. But in regards to getting like you know probably a lot of people on one particular farm, you know shooting copious amounts in my state, they wouldn't be you know happy with that, especially if they think it's quote unquote a range. So it's great you guys over there can you know do these things and get people over. The authorities are never like, well, what's going on here? Are they sort of easygoing or? Uh, there's a couple of things here I'll touch on. Potentially it could stop for us um, because they're looking at changing laws. They're sort of taking a back seat at the moment, which is good, and we're all trying to stop it. Um, they're trying to, yeah, make us register rangers, which would prevent our type of events potentially. Potentially. Yeah. But um, it, barring that, that hasn't happened. But um, the authorities are usually pretty good um, for the most part. Like a lot of um, – so the main ones we deal with, similar to you, is police. Um, and, and we and we definitely have trouble with them interpreting laws in their own ways, um, and, and we we can generally fight some of it. But a lot of police, especially in um, rural areas, they're shooters and hunters too. Um, so yeah, so like the big event 
we do each year, the main one, is called the RTT Long Range Challenge, and it's one of the biggest events in the North Island each year. Um, but we have sort of we've had a bit of interest from Defence Force and stuff like that about them coming along and putting some of their marksmen in it to gain skills from civilian shooters, you know. So, so it's not unpopular with the uh, authorities. As per se, yeah, yeah. What is mate? What is Taranaki long range shooters? So I went on your website a bit earlier and had some interesting information, but I thought you'd let the listeners know about what it is and what's the, I guess, purpose and goal of the of the group or the shooters, whatever you'd like to say. Yeah, so it's sort of a, it's been going for several years now. The idea was back um, many moons ago. Uh, one of my workmates and I were there was not a lot of events at the time. And we were just getting into it, so we were inexperienced. But we, lucky enough to have sort of access to several properties where we could shoot. And then so we approached a landowner, actually my next-door neighbour, and then um, about holding what we call a gong shoot. So it's essentially just one big long firing line, an open firing line, sort of shoot as you please, with steel targets right the way out to 1,000 metres. And then, so we got the ball rolling on that, and then I started a Facebook group, so there's like a private group side to it. That was what it originally was. And then sort of ran that several years doing different gong shoots and events all over Taranaki. And then uh, about uh, six months ago, I decided I'd, because I started getting sent um, sort of rifles and different bits of gear by companies to play with, you know, sort of as advertising for them. Yeah. But yeah. I, because it was a private group, they couldn't um, share any of that sort of stuff I'd put up about it. Um, so I made the um, the public page, which is sort of where I put most of my attention nowadays. Um, so that, yeah, Ter- Taranaki Long Range Shooting, that's what you'll see on Facebook and um, Instagram, YouTube and stuff. So that's that's where that's come from. So originally it was a group, and then we sort of organised events, and then now it's more so just the main page, and then the odd event. Um, and I have a bunch of people sort of help out organising those. Yeah. Excellent. Guys, we've got a quick break, and we'll be right back. Renowned for their strength, reliability and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision, from the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. Graham, mate, I want to talk about how you personally got into long-range shooting and hunting. I've got into it myself recently down this weird <laughs> long rabbit hole. I never thought it would be something I'd be interested in, but it's certainly taken my fancy. But I guess in part of this show, which I want to talk about as well, is when people get you know off-the-shelf rifles, for example, I want to sort of cater this show as well to people that might get an off-the-shelf rifle. They want something that they can get the best out of and stretch those legs out without having to spend you know, a lot of money in, in, in trying to do that. So how, first off, how did you get into long-range shooting and hunting? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so when I first got sort of my firearms licence and I was sort of shooting cowboy and um, I was also right into like military surplus rifles um, at the time and then just sort of any random stuff. And then I got laid off from my my job that I've worked at for quite a long time in a downturn here. And so I went to a new company and a couple of my new workmates I was working with um, every day were, were just getting into long range shooting and they were very keen hunters. 
And so I sort of um, were, I was encouraged by them to uh, give it a go. And so we, um, I actually didn't even have a rifle suitable. So I borrowed off my, my late father-in-law, I borrowed a, a Tika 243. And we went in um, another property up the road and we set up some um, steel targets. I think it was only like 300 metres or something. It wasn't very far. At the time, I thought it was quite far and started playing around. And I was using a holdover. I wasn't doing anything fancy. And so, and, and like no math to work out my holdover too. I was able to just shoot around. Nope, didn't hit it. Lifted a bit higher, shoot another round. <laughs> yeah. So I eventually figured out what line meant what on the scope. <laughs> and then, so we're doing that. And then, um, and then again, my workmate said to me, um, oh, there's this, this field shooting competition coming up in Tarata, which is um, only about 20 minutes down the road from where I live. So, oh, okay. So we went along to this competition and run by Gillis Practical Rifle Events, um, who I now work alongside a bit with several competitions. So we went along to this competition, not really knowing what to expect. Um, and it had a, um, a hunter class, which is sort of similar to what I talked to talked about earlier that had an open class which was more sort of longer range style shooting and the hunter class was at 300 odd meters um it was torrential rain and but the way you were shooting you're on these big hills and it was just fantastic and it i didn't do i think i come near last overall for the day um in the hunter class and so but it got me hooked and yeah and i and then i really sort of started thinking i want to compete in that competition next year and, um, you know, hopefully sort of maybe get a top five in the hunter class or or, or whatever. And then that sort of started the, obs- I, I will call it an obsession, the obsession with long range um, sort of precision shooting, wanting to get better and compete in these events. And then there's sort of a bunch of other events through the, you know, the time period before the next one, I competed in those and slowly got better and learned how to, you know, what minute of angle means and how to adjust scopes and, and, um, yeah, and it's all, all sort of started from that one competition um, really getting me hooked. I know I can talk about how you know, it, it gets us hooked, doesn't it? I thought it would be something that uh, I never really thought I'd be interested in even remotely, but <laughs> I'm the same as you. You just get involved. I think I knew someone that was doing it. I thought, wow, they're hitting you know these things at longer ranges. That's crazy. How awesome is that? And then started doing it myself, and then probably like you were well and truly down the rabbit hole now with lots of money spent. And uh, But I, I noticed on YouTube as well, you made a few things for YouTube, a few videos, and you make a few things for Instagram as well, like videos. Is that something you're going to continue with and push further in the future as well? Uh, yep, yeah, definitely. So most of my stuff is through Facebook. Um, I, I find anyway that, um, especially for New Zealand stuff, that seems to be where all the interest is. People do it through there. Um, but the YouTube, I probably uploaded maybe a quarter of my videos onto YouTube. Um, but yeah, they all get up on there, but I do like filming videos. I'm, I'm slowly getting better at it, you know, um, using multiple cameras and, uh, putting in a little bit of B-roll here and there. Uh, but yeah, definitely. It's a good way, especially with some of the long range 22 shooting. Cause <clears throat> if I just come out and say, oh yeah, I shot this little target a really long way away with the 22 you know, with bugger all attempts at it, people will just go, oh, yeah, whatever, he's he's full of it, you know, he's just making it up. But if I can provide a video of, with sort of multiple cameras, one filming the target and another filming me and and sort of I can make a cool video then. Although I do, I still do get accused that I Photoshop stuff and, <laughs> um, and uh. like, yeah, I've been accused because I do sort of say 22s at say 400 or 500 metres 
and people have accused me of using a two two three and then just editing the footage in and <laughs> all these sorts of things. But yeah, welcome yeah, to the internet. Like, welcome to the internet. Yeah, the the, the best thing about New Zealand um, on that respect is a lot of people come to the different events um, that sort of um, Taranaki Long Range Shootings put on or or other events, so you, you get to know a lot of different shooters from around the country. So in that respect, they can go, oh, no, we know Graham, we know he's not making it up just for the video. Um, at least I think that's what they're thinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. It's And I feel bad too because I like shooting my twenty two as well. I saw a couple of your, your photos and looks, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure what stock you've got on it, but uh, I had a CZ455 and my mate was bugging me to – to buy it off me, and I thought, oh, I wouldn't mind getting one of those four, five, sevens. You know, they've got a bit of a smaller action. I think it's a bit shorter. They've got a, a smaller bolt throw and stuff like that. I thought, yeah, all right, I'll get one. So I think I got the, which is my first chassis, surprisingly, for a 22. I bought the CZ457, and I got the, I think it's the MDT LSS Rimfire, I think, as well. And I think I got one of the... Yep skeleton style stocks that's legal in my state obviously as well with a raised cheek piece but i feel bad because i think i've had it since november last year and i've only shot it like once and i haven't even done any you know when i say low development like checking out some 22 and what's going to shoot best out of it now with this corona crap i can't even get to the range to even test it now so <laughs> that, yeah that's a good, that's, that'll be a good setup see, see mine the one the, my main one the tika t1x and it's in again it's in the LSS um chassis and I've just got the one of the carbine basic stocks on it. But see mine wasn't mine was for the standard Tika T three and I just milled it out to fit the T three X because they're very similar. Yeah, um, yep, yep. Purely just because it's what I had lying around. But it's yeah, it's fantastic. It's um yeah, I, I'm quite a fan of twenty two shooting. It's um it's a real good way to practice even long range sort of stuff, um, you know, on a smaller property. Or, or at a rifle club where you've only say you got 300 yards at a rifle club, you chuck a you know four inch target at 300 yards of a 22. That's a real challenge. Um, so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm big on 22 shooting. I had a bit of trouble with. Uh, I think I did a video about it on YouTube myself about some group testing and. Initially, I had some. It's working really well now. But I bought the T1X, ticker T1X, the 22 in the 16-inch barrel. Now it's shooting really well. But uh, had a few issues with it, just trying to get you know the right ammo, and then you know I put it into a different stock. I actually put it into the one of the varmint stocks I had for one of the other T3X rifles that I had. And as soon as I did that and took the, I think it was that little. There's a little in the front of the barrel, you know, it was like a little plastic clippy thing inside the stock. And I, they reckon that's no issue to it at all. But I took it out and put another a stock and then all of a sudden it just really all came together. So it was really good. So I got the, you know, the CZ457 for sort of that long range bit of fun, maybe a bit of bunny busting. And then I've got also the, the T1X with, you know, uh, the mill dots on the scope. So I'm shooting it out to like 150. Even my mate was there like a, a couple of months ago. Like we're just shooting like a rabbit gong at like 150. And he goes, shit, man, that thing's shooting, eh? <laughs> and I said, mate, it's doing a pretty good job. But I mean, it's not for hugely long range, but 150 is not bad for a, for a T1X. But once I get to like five mils, five dots, I'm pretty much screwed after that. But it's just a bit of a hunting gun. I use the 457 for more you know, more that long-range stuff, dialing and stuff like that. So two different purposes for two different rifles. But I agree, mate. Love the twenty-two as well. But um, next question is a very good one. What do you like to hunt, man? What's your, your sort of favourite animal? What's What game's in your area and what do you get to hunt over there in uh, in Taranaki? Uh, so in New Zealand, we're blessed with a huge selection of game animals. Um, 
and they're all considered pests by our government, pretty much. So, that, so we can hunt all year round in, in public land and then also private land. Uh, my region, we've got a, a massive amount of feral goats. Um, like you sort of see mobs of sort of, depending where you are, but, you know, 30 to 40 to 50 at a time and wow. a mob. <laughs> and they can really – so that's mostly on um, – oh, they're, they're in public land, but you'll mostly see them in um, – and private land because they come out into the the farmers' hills or fields. Um, we used to we used to deal to them with the AR-15s till they got taken off us. Um, so now we've sort of gone to bolt actions, which has slowed it down a bit. And I've, I seem to think the numbers are even higher now that we can't um, deal to them. But anyway, um, so feral goats are huge around here. Um, a lot of people they're really good practice um, for hunting, long range hunting, because they're um, not particularly hard to hunt. I, I wouldn't. To be honest, some people don't even call it hunting. It's it's that easy because um, it's sort of just everywhere. And then we've got um, oh, we've got we've got a little bit of rabbits and hares and magpies and um, that sort of thing. Oh, sorry, they're native to you, but here we're allowed to um, shoot them. And then we've got some fallow deer, not a lot, but there are pockets of fallow deer around Taranaki. We're, we're, so so yeah, a lot of those. Yeah, if you head a little bit south to the next region called Wanganui, um, there's a lot of fallow deer there, and then and then you red deer, you sort of head towards central North Island. So everything's within a couple of hours. Um, as for what's my favourite, I've not shot a lot of red deer. I've only shot four. So I'd like I'd like to get a really big red stag. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Um, <laughs> yeah, true. Not, not one of those big um, farmed ones that you see on, you know, that the Yanks come over and shoot, but yeah. a, a realistic one. Um, but as for what, what would be my favourite would be, I've only been, and I've only been hunting them once to be tar, the Himalayan mountain tar. We get them in the Southern Alps of New Zealand. Um, they're pretty cool. I'm, again, I've not and I've not got a big one. I've only got a sort of medium sized bull. Um, and it's just where you are, where you're hunting them is so cool in the Alps. It's just the terrain's just breathtaking. It's yeah, it's amazing. So, and, and then and then also the shooting too is um, fun because it's a lot of high angle shooting. Um, from awkward positions, a lot of it. So you've sort of got to be on your game, and you've, you've I find you've got to be able to sort of, um, if need be, perform a long range shot because a lot of the time they're up on big rocky bluffs and all sorts of weird places. So yeah, that'd be my top animal so far. Would be tar. Yeah, absolutely, mate. We're just going to go a quick break. After this, we're going to talk about some uh, favourite rifles and uh, what you own, and we'll go from there. So we'll go a quick break, and we'll be right back. The National Shooting Council has launched legal action against the decisions to effectively close gun shops in Victoria, Queensland and Western Australia. The closures were made for political reasons and are having devastating impacts on the livelihoods of people trying to run the shops that we need to keep. If you would like to support the fight to keep our gun shops open, then get behind the National Shooting Council today. To become a member or donate to the legal fight, just go to nationalshooting.org.au. Graham, I want to talk about, because I've seen on your page, you're a little bit like me. Hopefully you'll correct me if I'm wrong. So I've been a big fan of Ticker for a long time. Most of my firearms are, are, are Ticker, except for my CZ-22 now. or Yeah, the CZ-22, actually. Yeah, I've got a couple of shotguns as well. But I uh, bought myself a 300 Wim Mag and noticed that it's not really a true long action. And I was having trouble running the the heavy bullets that I want to run in the 300 Wim Mag. So I saw it a couple of guys' pages. You were, were all running the 
Uh, Bagara B14 HMR. So I thought, uh, you know, I've got a spare bit of money lying around, so why not purchase something else? Runs off the AICS mags, which is awesome. So uh, tell us about some of the stuff you own, because I know you're a fan of Chicker as well. I know you've got a Bagara B14 HMR as well and 6.5 Creedmoor. So what do you own? Are you a bit of a gun whore like me and just keep buying and you use all your funds on rifles like me? <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so I definitely don't have a small amount of rifles. Um, I've got quite a lot. Um, it's, it's, and it's definitely easier to, to buy firearms here, le- legally speaking, than it is in Australia. Because <laughs> yeah. I can just go and buy one from the shop, provide my licence and take it home. So, yeah, I I'm, I'm definitely don't have a favourite brand as such. Um, I have maybe four, I have four Tikas. I've got a, yeah, I've got four of them. Um but they're different. They're not my favourite, but I don't. Yeah, it's hard to say. Like you said, Bagara. That's it's becoming pretty popular in New Zealand. Um, I've only got one of them, uh, the B14 HMR and 6.5, and that that would be my favourite rifle. Not purely because of how it works. It, it, it runs smooth, and I've had good results in competition with it. So I, I always find if you if you sort of hit plenty of targets with your rifle, you like it more than sort of ones that are having <laughs> issues. And you sort of because you know. You blame a lot of people blame their rifle for sort of their poor shooting or or their poor hand loading or whatever. So Bagara is up there, and the fact if I if I can't get around to hand loading ammo, I can buy factory ammo and compete in sort of national level competition with factory ammo and um you know uh, practical field shooting. So that'd be my favourite. Uh, I've got a but I've got a bunch of stuff in there. I've got. Uh, I've got a bunch of howlers. I quite rate howlers for how cost-effective they are. Um, sort of a no-frills gun, but they're very accurate. And so that I can buy two howlers to every Tika. And when I'm trying to test and play with a lot of rifles, I can't always afford to buy the sort of high-end stuff. Um, what else have I been playing with? Brownings. I've got a couple of Browning um, X-Bolts. They're nice. Um, and then I've got a bunch of like old military surplus collectible stuff. Uh, yeah, a lot of that old stuff sort of takes up a little bit of my time. And I, and I do enjoy shooting long range with that stuff too. It's interesting because I spend like, I've found it very difficult to get away from one particular brand just because if I like something and it seems to work and it's cost effective, you know, I sort of try and do that. But mm-hmm. with the 300 in the uh, 300 Wim mag, you know, with the short magazine, I mean, I've got the 7 mil Ram mag in ticker as well, which seems to be doing well with the 162s. Again, I haven't shot it yet, but based on my measurements, I'm sort of just at that limit for that bullet weight for that particular action for, for that particular brand. But when I step up to the 208s, which is what I want to shoot in the 300 Wim mag, you know, the magazine is just way too short. You know, I'd pretty much, to get it close to the lands, I'd have to pretty much seed it out probably 250,000 further outside the case. And then if I do do that, the problem is when I'm actually ejecting the case too, if I don't shoot the round, the tip hits the side of the action, so I can't get it out anyway. And the only way to get it out is then to release the bolt handle, pull the bolt out and get it out that way. Well, not really what I'm interested in, so... I've seen a bunch of you guys using the Bagara, so I thought, oh, well, I'll take a risk, and it, I'm really impressed with it, actually, just the feel of it so far. I'm not sure oh. about the whether the bolt's as smooth as the Tikas. You know, they're pretty well-renowned for their smooth, you know, bolts and stuff like that, but if it shoots well and the stock on it's bloody fantastic with the cheek riser and stuff, you're sort of getting that whole package of what you need if you wanted to sort of get into that sort of, you know, long-range shooting market, and it probably had a pretty reasonable cost as well. Yeah, very reasonable cost. I've, I, I don't own the 300 Win Mag, but I've shot one 
uh, quite a bit. Now, it wasn't in the original HMR stock. It had been decked out in a um, MDT elite sniper system chassis, and it had a lot of money thrown at it. It was a, one of the companies I did a bit of work with. It was one of their rifles. Um, but what a smooth... It, it shot fantastic. Like, it was... Yeah. Like, it, it, it had just been put together, had a quick load development, and we're just straight out validating 800 metres, just smashing targets. It was... Yeah, I, I quite like 301 mag. It's, it's, it is an old cartridge, but it, it hasn't stopped working well. Um, yeah, I actually used to shoot 301 mag quite a lot when I first got into long range. Um, I've sort of gone back to the mid-sized cartridges now. But, but yeah, no, you can't go wrong with the Bagaras, I don't think. They sort of do everything Remington should do. Yeah, I've never really shot those Magnum. I mean, I've shot a couple like friends here and there, you know, like a 300 Remington Ultra Mag and stuff like that, but never actually own one myself. I've had a 308. Again, I've got mates that always seem to me when I sort of put down animals, they go, geez, that's a good gun. And they always want to buy my shit. So, um, you know, I decided on the, uh, I, mean, I had a 308 in a ticker super light. My mate, oh, he was begging me for ages to, um, you know, he wanted it. I said, well, mate, if I ever sell it, I'll give you the offer. If you want to pay what I'm asking, then you can have it. If not, I'm just going to keep it. And then, Saw a great deal on a seven mil rem mag that a, a fortunately a guy had bought but couldn't use it and you know really couldn't keep it anymore due to some uh, personal circumstances. So I snapped it up for an absolute steal. So I can't wait to sort of get out once this bloody virus goes away and give it a bit of a shot, see how it goes on game. But I know you got the is it the Browning Hell's Canyon in seven mil? And you know, I've seen a few of your videos. You smashed a few goats here and there. So. What's your thoughts on the seven mil? I guess this might put my mind to rest as well, based on you know that sort of cartridge, those Magnum cartridges. Uh, yeah, I I really really like the seven mil remag. Again, uh, mainly because of everything I've, I've um, shot with it game wise has just um, been obliterated. It's there's been the only things that have sort of moved off have been large red deer, and when I say moved off, they've sort of turned and ran maybe five meters and then fell over. It's been um, Wicked. It's yeah. The, I sort of try to limit my long range hunting five six hundred meters. Um, I have I have shot stuff further, but um, I, I generally try and keep inside that range where I'm pretty confident I can um, take the shot and not mess it up. Because generally, where I'm shooting long range goats and that, it's not simple to get over to where they are if you do mess the shot up. Um, you know, if you've got to go put them down. So I've got to be confident. And that said, Mill Remag Browning is shooting yeah, exceptionally well. And the power down range is devastating with the with the Remag. So, um, yeah, I rate it. I like Magnums for hunting, for longer range hunting, for sure. I wonder about the, I think the Hell's Canyon, because my mate's got one too. I think he's got one, possibly 3006. So how does a mag go on? Because I'm toss it up now it's gonna be more for hunting but i tend to hunt you know some state land and stuff like that which can be pretty thick pine country so, so sometimes and which happens a lot yeah i'm just walking through the bush and all of a sudden i look up and I'm, I'm staring at two or three deer you know right in front of me so sometimes i'm contemplating i know the hell's canyon comes with a break should i put like a little radio break on it or something like that but again sometimes the you know terrain i hunt i need to shoot straight away and i don't really want to you know, blow my hearing out. So I'm sort of wondering how effective the break is on the 7 mag. Uh, that's probably, to be honest, my least favourite part of the rifle. I'm not a huge fan of radial breaks. It, it, the recoil's okay, but it's it's still, um, it's throwing, when I'm, say I'm watching a target or a, a, an animal at 500 metres, when I shoot, I'm still getting the muzzles lifting and I'm still getting thrown off the rifle a little bit and losing my sight picture. And I'd rather sort of keep an eye on it and at least try and spot 
whether I hit the animal or, or whether I miss or whatever. Um, so the recoil is not bad. I plan on putting a directional brake on it uh, at some point. But yeah, that, that's that's where I see as the biggest letdown is the radial brake on the thing. But then if you go to a directional brake, you're pushing that noise back towards the shooter even more, and it's going to be even louder again. Um, well, well, perceived as louder. The gun's not any louder with a muzzle brake. You're just instead of going downrange, it's coming towards you. It's all the noise. But um. Yeah, for you, you guys are a bit hamstrung with that sort of thing because in New Zealand, everyone for bush hunting, they just chop their barrel down and they put a suppressor on it. Yeah, I and know. It, Jeez, I wish yeah, we but, could have those, man. It's just what a what a tool. Like, yeah, I understand people, you know, wanting to use you know a suppressor, but you know, if they're going hunting, it might be a bit heavy. Maybe put a brake on. But if they go mm-hmm. hunting or to a range using a suppressor, I think it's a bloody awesome tool. But unfortunately. Our government's too retarded to understand that this would help, you know, not only reduce noise from ranges, but, um, you know, be able to cull more animals. But, you know, over here, our government thinks everyone's going to turn into a contract sniper. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which we know doesn't happen. Here, like, even, even with the um, issues we've been having over the last years, um, suppressors, when I first got my rifles license, my firearms license, I was encouraged by the, by the, um, the representative from the place I did it with to use suppressors, especially if where I was living at the time was rural, but there's still houses within 700 metres, you know, use a suppressor. Every chance you get, use a suppressor. We were encouraged, well, I was anyway, to um, to use one, just because people, like say someone who maybe not used to live in the country, they'll ring up the police and say, how hey, much someone's shooting a gun, and the police have to go out and look, you know. But So if you're using a suppressor, they'd rather you did just to, Less noise complaints, really. What's yeah. the the benefits, pros and cons? Do you think, say, over a, over a break? I mean, from what I've heard from people, breaks are probably a bit more what's well, economical, a bit better on recoil reduction. But obviously, then you got re- better, re- good recoil reduction and sound suppression with a suppressor or moderator. So, what are you finding with the the differences between the two? Uh, depending, it all depends on setup. So, if I'm running a really big, heavy um, sort of precision rifle that weighs like twenty pounds with a scope on it. Uh, and it's in like a six millimeter or something. Even without a break, there's not going to be a lot of recall. So a suppressor I would be pretty good on that to cut down that noise. And you're still going to be able to see your target just fine. But on the bigger magnums, yeah, breaks a well-designed break is generally more efficient. But again, it depends on what you're doing. If you're hunting, you might not have the most stable shooting position anyway. Um, so a suppressor can be pretty good because you're getting the best of both worlds. And like you say. Um, you might you might need to take a, a shot at an animal and you've only got, say, three or four or five seconds to make your decision, identify your animal and take the shot. You haven't got time to put hearing protection in. And and walking around with hearing protection is just not it's not gonna happen in the real world. So yeah, it depends on situation. Um but I use um muzzle brakes and suppressors in competition. Um my twenty twos I generally suppress nearly all of them purely because it's so easy. Like a real high-quality 22 suppressor is like $150 Kiwi. So Man, I've got to start moving to New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is better. <laughs> well, it used to be real good. But anyway, but yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff like that's really easy. Like suppressors, I can, I could like send an email now and order 10 suppressors. And I mean, once lockdown finishes here in a couple of days, they'll get posted to me and they'll be here the day after. Wow. And there's no, there's no police paperwork. They're just a, um, yeah, an aid or a health and safety device or whatever you want to call them. I know. If you, if you had to pick one, though, let's say long-range hunting or long-range target shooting, which one and why? Ooh. 
Uh, I've stumped him only in the middle of the show. (laughs) Yeah, I really, really enjoy competitive sort of um, practical field shooting, which is sort of the long range we do. Um, I'd choose a really good hunting, like a practical field shooting competition over a hunt most of the time, purely because there's only, say, um, three or four or five big ones a year in New Zealand. So I can there's only so many chances to do that, whereas hunting, you can go nearly every every day if you can make the time. So, yeah, I'd, I'd choose a really good long-range sort of practical field shooting competition over a hunt. Excellent. Yeah. Man, we're just getting another quick break, and we'll be right back. Are you looking to buy a new or used firearm? Do you want to sell that safe queen to fund your next purchase? Then go to OzGunSales.com. We have over 200 registered firearms dealers, Australia-wide, and thousands of shooters using the site daily. There are over 2,500 firearms listed, so you're certain to find exactly what you're looking for. We have over 50 years of firearms industry experience, including eight years online. So why wouldn't you advertise with us? The one and only genuine original Ozguns. Mate, I want to talk about, because people message me all the time saying, hey, Jason, listen, we maybe not can't afford to get into the expensive stuff. And you were pretty well talking about the Howards and stuff for, but off-the-shelf rifles, what pieces of equipment do people need to say get out there and stretch the legs of their rifle and have good success? You know, I won't say on a budget, but be not having to go out there and spend $10,000 thinking they need all this fandangled equipment to go out there and shoot long range. They might have a 223, they could have a 308. I mean, what do you think they need to get out there and stretch the legs of their rifle? Now, this is actually a question I get quite often too because <clears throat> a lot of guys can't afford to go and spend. A thousand, two thousand, ten thousand—it's just not realistic for a lot of people, you know. Single-income families, young kids. Um, actually, I even did a video series, a thousand meters for a thousand Kiwi dollars. It's back from old videos, but um, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 all about well, if you've got a basic hunting rifle already, that sort of shoots okay. Um, so first things first, say you've got a three hundred eight. Find, I'm assuming you're going to buy factory ammo. Find a factory load that shoots okay, but with a reasonable a, a bullet that performs reasonably well, so with a reasonable BC. So you've got to say a minute of angle accuracy, five shots in a minute of angle, and then you're going to need a scope that allows you to um, accurately measure drop at distance. So either something that has an exposed turret that you can adjust, you know, minute of angle or milliradians, depending on which way you measure things or a uh, BDC reticle that you can use for long-range shooting. Um, I don't, again, if, you, if you're getting into it, you don't have to go and drop all that money straight away. You can just start with what you've got. So most of the Tika package deals we get here in New Zealand, they'll have a little, like, Bushnell or Burris scope on them, but it'll have a little BDC reticle. So you can actually work out what each of those reference points means, and they might go out, say, three, 400 metres, and then... Reducing the magnification on your optic will increase the the distance between them. So instead of that first dot meaning 200 metres, it might mean 250 metres, and the last dot might mean 700 metres. So you can use setups that basic to achieve reasonably precise long-range hits. The trouble being you generally reduce magnification the further you want to push it. So the, the further you go, the, the less you see. But other than that, just a, it's a basic dialing scope. It doesn't have to be super flash. It just needs to be consistent. So when you dial it up to that, um, that however many minutes of angle, it's going to be the same every time. 
Um, but I mean, then you can start adding in 20 minute angle bases, or um, you can bed the the action to the um, rifle stock, or get a chassis, or whatever you want to do. But I definitely, I'm big on. Yeah, you you can shoot what you have, or or at least get away with spending a smaller amount and learning for a while until you can afford what you'd like to have rather than what you have at the moment. And if people are starting out too, like you know, long range shooting, what are say top two or three tips if they want to start stretching out those rifles, either long range, you know, shooting or hunting? Uh, I'll split it up into long range shooting and then hunting because I think there's diff- different things to consider there. Uh, long range shooting. Um, practice, oh this is for both of them but practice is big so we've got a real problem, I won't call it a real problem but I have a lot of people who I meet through work or all my stuff I do on the web just Kiwi hunters and they want to extend their hunting distance say to two, three hundred metres which for me and you is, it's a relatively easy distance to shoot, like it, I don't really bat my eyes at it but for them it's a long way but the main issue I see is the, their rifles just aren't zeroed properly so they generally, generally the height's pretty good, but they'll be like a foot to the left or four inches right of. That's constantly, so a, a good zero. And then also for, for wanting to shoot long range, you're going to need to build a ballistic program through either an app or, or something along those lines. So you're going to need accurate velocity. So you can either use um, sort of the, the older style of uh, shooting it at 300 metres and measuring the drop and putting that into your app or... You can borrow a chronograph or something. So I use a lab radar, so that gives me super accurate velocities. So the, the better the information I put into my app, the more accurate results I see in sort of real life. Um, and I'll then confirm all of those at distance. And I'm lucky enough to be able to shoot at distance to confirm because real-world data is worth a lot more than um, sort of data off an app anyway. That's how I see it. And then the third thing is for, for target shooting anyway is and hunting, but learning what minutes of angles, well, I'll just stick to minutes for now, what minutes of angles mean, so that they're a linear measurement, so it's one inch at 100 yards, two inches at 200 yards, so on and so forth, and so when you adjust, uh, say you're shooting a target at K, and you miss, and it's 10 inches from the centre of target, and it's off the side, okay, I can now measure it my reticle, move it over a minute of angle, and then hit the target dead centre. So learning how minute of angle, or, or middle radians, but mostly minute of angle works, and then um, that's a real big one. A lot of people seem to struggle for a little while with, with getting their head around that, but it's actually pretty basic. And then moving on to sort of long-range hunting. Um, long-range hunting gets a little bit of um, stick in New Zealand from more traditional hunters because... Um, the Don't worry, it does here too, so... <laughs> yeah, um, the increased risk of wounding animals, although, again... Most a lot of hunters here don't have very good zeros, so they wound animals anyway. But again, because so you've got the wind and you've got sort of shooting over gullies and all these things come into an account, into account, sorry. And and then so let's say you've practiced well enough, you've learned how to, um, you know a little bit about shooting in the wind and 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 um, where your bullet's going to be. But then you've got to sort of also choose a projectile that'll expand and transfer its energy into the game at distance. Um, so your target projectiles, a lot of them won't. Some of them will. Some of the Hornadays aren't so bad. But you've got to know that that projectile is going to expand and and incapacitate the animal well at distance. Um, so that's, yeah, you've got to... 
either study it or, or that's that's a thing in New Zealand because we've got feral goats and they're not particularly hard to to put down. A lot of guys will um, practice on those and then inspect the um, the damage to the animal from the projectile and that way and then they know, okay, it's performing pretty good and then they can move on to being confident on larger game like red deer and stuff. So again, I don't shoot a lot of big game at distance purely because I haven't had that many chances to do it, but you still need to know that that bullet's going to expand and do the damage. Yeah, you brought up a good one there too. Very interestingly, chronographs and accurate uh, velocities and stuff. So let's talk about maybe the chronographs and stuff. What's what's good on a elaborate? I think I've got a magneto speed. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not sure 100 percent whether hanging something off the end of your barrel is probably the best option, but it seems to be doing an okay job. Doesn't seem to affect my point of impact or anything like that. And it's interesting because when I've had some of these rifles too, and I've you know got them threaded for muzzle brakes and stuff like that, like it's never actually affected my POI at all. But and some some I've checked before. You know, I've got them threaded, so I did a bit of load testing, then decided to get it threaded later on. It hasn't really changed anything. So, but the, getting back to Chronographs, what do you think in regards to getting something accurate? Obviously, Lab Radar seems to be very popular, but also very expensive too. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. I, I bought one uh, several years ago. I was doing a lot of overtime at work, so I sort of had a, you know, I was doing it about 100 hours a week, so I, I was able to afford one at the time. Um, and I'm glad I did because the thing gets a hammering. It's used not just by me, but every every bugger in the region comes and uses it. Um, but I used to use a one of the more basic sort of cheap uh, $150, $200 cronies, and I've actually done limited, just for curiosity's sake, shooting sort of past the cheaper chronograph and then comparing it to my lab radar, and I was definitely getting varied results on the cheap chronograph, um, and then the lab radar was sort of seemed to be a lot more accurate anyway. Um, but again, those those cheaper chronographs will sort of get you near enough, I, I think. Um, but yeah, the lab radar is excellent. Um, mine runs via Bluetooth through my cell phone, so I can be either shooting and have my phone next to me, and I, you know, I can let, I can let off a shot and sort of just without taking my face off the rifle if I'm shooting a group, glance at my phone next to me, and it, it's giving me my velocity, and then um, I can carry on shooting without taking my face off the rifle. And then if one of my mates or, or someone's using my radar, I'll, I'll just be standing behind them generally with my phone and all that data is just flowing through to my phone, and it automatically gets logged on there. It's fantastic. And then the magneto speeds, I wouldn't... They're pretty good, too. I've used them a bit. Um, I wouldn't really pick one over the other, to be honest, but I think definitely the long, the further you want to shoot, you, you need to know that, that super um, sort of accurate data, and that's where those high-end um, craniographs come into play. Now, some people probably aren't going to be able to afford, you know, multiple rifles, as you said, single incomes, kids, stuff like that. So if they want to just buy one, what would be, say, your top two, you know, preferred calibers? Let's say they want to start with long-range shooting and then extend that into their hunting activities as well. What are, say, two calibers you think would be appropriate for someone to get into? Obviously, they might want to shoot larger game as well, so big enough to be able to shoot that bigger game if they get that opportunity. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so if you if you're... I think if you're starting off, I don't. When I started, I got a, a three and a wind mag, and it wasn't a really good decision. I don't now that I look back at it because it didn't have a thread on the end, and I didn't know anyone who could sort that out for me at the time. So I was shooting it, no muzzle brake, no suppressor, getting beat up by recoil. Not, I didn't have a flinch, but I didn't enjoy shooting it. And then I moved on to sort of your 308 base calibers, six fives, and all that. Um, so if you're 
if you wanted to shoot, um, I'll, I'll put hunting to the side, sort of competitive, or you like going to like we I don't know you call it we call it F class here, so like long range paper shooting, all that sort of thing. One of those mid sized calibers, low recoil. Uh, cheaper ammo or less reloading consumables anyway, um, and sort of you know you can you get a lot of time on the rifle. So six five Creedmoor, hey, it's a cliche answer now, and people make fun of you, but it works. Um, the factory ammo is really good. It's cost effective. It's an inherently accurate cartridge. It's easy to load for. Um, people make fun of it all you like, but sort of five out of the top ten shooters at all the competitions I go to are generally shooting six five Creedmoor. <laughs> so yeah, and then 308 is a really good option too. It's sort of falling by the wayside. Um, a lot of people are starting to consider it a bit of a boomer cartridge, but um, it's still good. You know, the army still uses it. Not not that that says much because they're usually 10 years behind everything. But um, you know, a 308 with like a 168 or a 175 grain projectiles, you know, it's something to contend with. So, and then if and you can still hunt with both of them to to medium distances. Um, you see a lot of the American stuff, they push them a little bit far, in my opinion, for how much energy they'll still be retaining at distance. But um, but see, I, I would happily shoot a goat at 400 metres with my 6.5 Creedmoor with a good projectile. It wouldn't phase me. Um, yeah. I know. It's always funny having debates with my mate when I was looking at you know, a bunch of my mates on Instagram too. We all take the you know, piss out of each other. Some have got 6.5 Creedmoor, I've got 260 and you know I always joke with them you know 6.5 Creedmoor was the 260 10 years too late but Hornady had very very good uh, marketing purposes you know what I mean? It's the man bun round for the 6.5 Creedmoor so yeah. but uh, you know we always have it's all just jokes obviously. If anyone listening to this don't take it seriously. It's all just a bit of fun talking about you know, different rifles and stuff. But I'm really impressed, actually. It's my first, I guess, 6.5 cartridge as well. I've been really impressed with, you know, ballistics, you know, trajectory, just the whole bit, just the, the long, slim bullets and, and what they're able to do out at those longer distances. You know, I was shooting, I think, 650 on a small, you know, what, 11, you know, 10.9-inch, 11-inch gong, basically, at 655 and just, you know, lobbing those bullets in and it's just a – it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful cartridge, and yeah, I'm really impressed with those six point fives. Yeah, so it's definitely. Like, I mean, the Europeans have been using you know six and a half millimeters and playing with them for what 130 years now. Yeah. And then, I mean, a lot of our, our rifle trends, especially sort of post World Wars, come from America. Once we sort of got ingrained with them after all the war aid and all that, so. 30 cows and I mean 270 was real popular here for a long time and those were big powerful cartridges but now that long range is so popular um, yeah definitely the the 6.5s you're still not seeing a lot of 6mm in New Zealand not that I've seen anyway in in practical sort of field shooting Um, I'm building one funnily enough but it's still yeah a lot of 6.5s and the variation on it now too that you got the 260 is very popular, Creedmoor, um, 65 SLR. There's all these different ones now that are being done. Um, 65 PRC is becoming quite popular for a sort of Magnum 65. Um, yeah, I, they work. It's easy. Like I've got a 260 as well, as you know, in a Tika, and it's fantastic. Yep. It's, um, it's Low development was easy, doesn't use very much powder, um, and I can go and burn 50 rounds and it's not breaking the bank, you know, whereas if I was shooting 50 rounds of around one mag or three through eight or something it's quite an outlay of money um so yeah i've yeah big fan of six five essentially i've got maybe seven or eight of them in different forms 
I didn't realize. I mean, I knew 308 when I had it. Like, it's not really that expensive, not that much grains using like 2209 in it. But when I started reloading this 7 mag and the and the 300 Wim mag and uh, 76 to 80 grains or 81 and a half, almost 82 grains of powder, I was like, man, shit, this eats the powder, doesn't it? Like, I think I got oh, yeah. I think I got a 500 gram two, triple two five, so I'm going to start trying that first. Might be a little bit fast, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, in, in that yep. in that three hundred and the and the seven mil, but I was like, man, this is expensive. Like it's I'm using two hundred and eight grain ELDMs in the three hundred and the one sixty two grain ELDX, and I'm like, shit, man, this is this is probably gonna be more expensive than I thought. Not that it's a big deal, but I thought I've only reloaded forty rounds of the wind mag. I'm probably better off buying this by the kilo if it uh, or the three or four kilos if it actually shoots. So yeah, there definitely is a big difference. I I recently um or oh, maybe. A year ago now, out of curiosity's sake, I bought a 6.5 Grendel, so it's sort of half the powder again of a 6.5 Creedmoor, just to see how far I could push it. But that's 27 yeah. grains of powder or something. Instead of you know 44 or 45, it's just nothing. It's it's fantastic. And when I'm shooting out to only sort of four, five, six hundred meters, the Grendel's still got plenty of, plenty of grunt and it's accurate. So it's been quite fun and it's reasonably cost effective. And I, and I always take quite a lot of. Um, I enjoy taking a caliber and seeing how far I can push it because people go oh why don't you just use a Creedmoor or a 308 or a 301 mag um, you know instead of the Grendel when I've, I've got those other rifles but it's fun trying to see if I can get that same well not same performance but achieve that same accuracy out of that small cartridge that was never really intended to be pushed that fast or that that far um, yeah it's quite a buzz actually alright guys another quick break and we'll be right back the new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass. Enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% of the eye light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit o usaaustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. Mate, I want to talk about reloading, which is, we'll talk about, that was an optics ad, so we're going to talk about optics a little bit later, uh, a bit more in depth, but I want to talk about reloading uh, for accuracy and stuff like that. Is accuracy obviously is important, but reloading versus factory ammo, what do people need to do? There's a lot of talk at the moment as well between, you know, match bullets, obviously for target shooting, a lot of people are starting to branch out into, say, Hornady ELDMs for their hunting as well, which you see a lot on YouTube and stuff like that, with pretty good results, some mixed results, but some pretty good results. So what's your thoughts on the reloading versus factory and ballistic coefficient of bullets, etc.? cetera? Uh, yeah, I reload qu- quite a lot of calibers. Um, some of it purely because uh, the ammo isn't available anymore for older stuff. Some of it because... The ammo is available, it's not very good or it's prohibitively expensive. And then there's the precision side of things. So Creedmoor, I can shoot factory ammo because I can get sort of match-grade ammo for around $2 a round. And, you know, that's pretty good. But as for um, uh, sort of 308 or even older things like 270, a lot of the cartridges, especially what we get here in New Zealand, are um, orientated for hunting. So they're sort of... um, sort of round those lead bullets, low BCs, um, whatever. So definitely for a lot of cartridges, uh, hand loading is, is 
not the only way, but it's, it's definitely the, the way I'd go. So 260 we've talked about several times tonight. The, the factory offerings for 260 in New Zealand are rubbish. You've got some like Remington Corlock and then Hornaday Super <laughs> Same Corlock. over here, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there is you can special order in like Hornady Match, but it's going to be sort of 100 Kiwi dollars or 80 Kiwi dollars for 20 rounds. Again, you can order all the components and select what projectile you want. You can go through, you know, read up what powders are giving what results, talk to your friends, what they're doing, right? The internet isn't always the most helpful place for reloading, I find. Um, as you know, everyone on the internet is a, uh, their gun shoots sort of one whole groups and all that. But, um, <laughs> I always yeah, say, then, look at the website, guys. Look at your, your powder website and go off there because some yeah. people I've seen some of the advice. I'm like, oh, man. Cause I, it was interesting because I had a two, four, three years ago running. I think it was 2208. I didn't get results good with 2208 from ADI. Then I went to 2209. And yeah. one of the books from an old reloader from years ago wasn't accurate in what the manufacturer of the powder was saying right now. And I think it's, it's said in one of the magazines, I think 45.5 or 45, mate, at 43.5, I was blowing primers straight out, straight out. And I'm like, shit. And I saw a bit of smoke come out of the action. I thought, oh, shit, this is not good. And then went home and checked it and was totally wrong. It was like three grains over what it should have been compared to the book. And I said, check the manufacturer's website because at least of the powder to make sure that, you know, you got the right and, you know, don't screw up on these things, guys. Take notice because if you do something wrong, you can blow your head off, blow your hands off, you know, lose your eyesight, anything's possible. Yeah, definitely. So what I, I find um, I do what like Saturday load development sort of things to find nodes, but I a lot of people I know they'll start around max pressure uh, max book load um i like to and i do generally end up around max load but i'll start say two grains below or three grains below and go up in 0.2 grain increments and i'll look for that i'll look for a no but i'll also look for pressure because the pressure signs and 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 um, cartridges it's pretty easy you know you sort of start your your primer starts flattening out or this and that and then you get sort of extractor marks on the back of the case and then you start getting sticky bolt lift and, and eventually your primers blow out and you know so yeah, <laughs> that's it, where it, i was at you, yeah and, it, and it, but it gives you heaps of warnings it's not like it's a switch i mean and there's going to be some powders that are more sensitive than others but um, so again, here in Australia and New Zealand, Australia, majority of what we use, we use a lot of ADI powders because obviously they come from uh, over over the, the ocean there, yeah. and then a lot of other powders is ADI rebranded anyway. But all that info is on ADI's website. It's pretty good. They keep it pretty well updated. And then another, I find uh, I've got a bunch of reloading manuals, but the Hornaday, the current edition Hornaday manual is excellent. It's good. Um, it's not overly conservative with its numbers. A lot of people moan that you know they're worried about getting sued and rah rah but find that pressure yourself and go from there. Don't just go well over books, book max or book max straight away. Um, try to feel it out. And every rifle is going to be slightly different. It's not often that. I've got, <clears throat> funnily enough, a uh, Howler 65 Creedmoor, and um, I've developed a load for my next-door neighbour. He bought one, nearly the same gun, pretty much identical. Developed the load for him, and then I thought, oh, I wonder if that'll work in that other Creedmoor I've got that I haven't shot yet, and it didn't. It, it didn't group very well whatsoever. So identical guns, but the load required was different. So you've really got to work up. Instead of just taking your mate's load data, work up and find it yourself. And if you're unsure about reloading, read the books, 
and I, I said don't go off the internet, but <clears throat> there are several good reloading channels on YouTube you can watch. Like, um, I don't mind Johnny's Reloading Bench and Panhandle Precision. There's some people you can sort of watch, but for the most part, read the books, go off the manufacturer's data, and, and you'll get there. I also want to talk about, which is the biggest one, when you know, long-range shooting and hunting, and I've seen some of the vids over there, and it happens here a bit too, but you guys have got those big mountains, like real mountains, not like our mountains. We've got some pretty steep territory, but uh, windy conditions, you know, very hard to manage windy conditions, especially when long-range shooting depends on calibers, heavy bullets, wind, throwing bullets around, stuff like that. How do people counteract for win and learn win? Because I'll probably find it's one of the biggest things that's affected me um, in in stretching out those you know further longer ranges when we are contending with wind, especially at you know long distance and swirling winds too when it's constantly changing as well. Yeah, uh, so we get a lot of swirling winds depending where we're shooting because we generally to get distance, especially in um, say the region I'm in, uh, on farms big enough that you can shoot that far, they're generally quite hilly. We would call them mountains, we'd call them big hills, um, but but big steep ridges and that, and you get winds coming from left and right and up and down and so you've, you've really got to before you take the shot even if you can't you know think can I close this gap a bit closer say if it's 500 yards think if I walk over there I might be able to shave 100 off or, or, or something like that but if you say if you've got to take the shot the target or animal or whatever um, it's practice so I we've, a lot of Kiwi hunters anyway I couldn't speak for Aussies but they might only shoot one or two shots a year and they might shoot those deer at 50 metres, and so it's not a particularly hard shot. And so generally they're pretty confident in their own shooting abilities because they might shoot two deer a year or ten deer a year. But most of them, again, don't shoot those longer shots, so they don't know what to do. So what I do is, not that I'm very good at it, I go out and practice a heap. You know, it's a bit windy today. Hey, cool, I'm going to go do some practice, and I'll just, I sort of, I'll take a, a guess of what I think the wind is, and I usually do miles per hour, and I'll um, what I can feel, what I can see on the trees and the grass, and I'll um, and then I've got a little. It's only a cheap one. It's a little one that plugs in my phone, a little wind meter. I haven't got a Kestrel or anything flash, and I'll actually read the wind, and then I'll I'll go. Oh yeah, cool. I was, I was pretty close, and I've sort of been doing that enough over the last few years that I can sort of guess mild winds, um, and then I'll, I'll I'll make a correction. But the trouble with that is that's only giving me wind where I am. And you hear that from everyone, you know, you're only getting the wind where you are if you're measuring it. So you've really got to keep an eye on trees and um, grass. And another big one, or dust in summer when we do get dry here. Um, one we get here in summer, which I sort of got taught to use, is we when we get thistles growing everywhere and they, they blow the seed off and it's got a big white puffy seed. I don't know if you get them in Australia. And they float around. Yep, yep. And so it's pretty straightforward. Okay, and so what I do is instead of, measuring wind in miles per hour, I'll measure in metres per second. So I can watch those prickle seeds getting blown around and I can sort of estimate, oh yeah, between that point and that point, 10 metres. And so I'll watch a prickle seed. There's generally heaps of them in summer and I'll count how long it takes to get from tree to tree. And then I can go, oh yeah, at that 400 yards or whatever, the wind's moving at sort of, you know, 20 metres or, you know, four metres per second or whatever. And it works out to be. So there's a few little tricks I use, whether they're helpful for people, I don't know. And then, but yeah, if it's super wind, like it's super windy, sort of over sort of maybe 10 mile an hour, I'll generally limit my long range hunting a lot. Um, unless it's sort of within three, 400 metres. 
you'd be surprised those longer distances as it sometimes starts to slow down a bit too. And the further you go out, even the smallest wind can, you know, make a big difference. Oh, you will definitely. So, you know, like you say, the further you, further out your bullet is, the slower it's going. And so it's going to be affected even more, you know? Um, so yeah, you, you did right. There's, wind is, I don't think anyone's truly mastered wind. I'm definitely a, very much still a student. Um, at, a lot of the time too, we'll be shooting competition and, the the wind here has a habit of changing. I don't off, we don't often get a really consistent wind. Like consistent wind's pretty easy, especially in competition, because once you've figured it out, you just apply that same solution for whatever distance. But we shot a competition and back in January, one of uh, the Gillis Practical Rifle Events competition and over in central North Island, wicked event. But we had winds going left and right and up and down. It was just chaotic. It was so much fun. You couldn't watch the shooter before you, and sort of because you know you, sometimes you can sort of keep an eye on him, and oh, yeah, he said, oh, yeah, I held three mil of wind or whatever, and you can sort of apply his wind holds to a certain degree, but you just couldn't at all. Like wind was changing 180 degrees between shooters, so it's just too unpredictable sometimes. And in that situation, I would, if I could, I'd close the distance on the game um, to maybe 200 or 300 meters and take the shot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A big one, and I've done a few podcasts, one just recently actually talking about scopes and probably years ago, you know, I say, you know, generally spend a bit more if you can. I wasn't always of that, uh, I guess, doctrine, so to speak. Sometimes, you know, I think if people are shooting at 100 metres, this is my opinion, you know, a reasonable you know, cheap to mid-range scope will do the job if you're shooting 100 metres, provided it's, you know, not going to get knocked out of zero. But if we are going to get into that longer range shooting, I'd probably rather have less rifles and less scopes and try and get better stuff of the rifles that I do have. That's my general opinion. So let's talk about optics in general. First thing probably we'll cover on the optics, first or second focal plane, because a lot of people, you know, fighting about this all the time especially in long-range shooting. So what's your thoughts on first or second focal planes? And if people probably listen to the show, probably not going to go to, into what is is first and second focal plane. Really, there's plenty of things on the internet. Just check it up and then come back to the show because they can probably give you a bit more in-depth uh, discussion about first and second focal plane. So what's your thoughts on it, Graham? Uh, yep. So when I first got into longer-range shooting and when I f- purchased my first um, reasonable optic, anyway, I went on second focal plane. And the reason I did that is because I knew no better. So I didn't know the difference. I didn't know there was multiple options. All the, all the firearms I'd shot through my whole life had been second focal plane. I thought that's all there was. And so I got it, and it, it didn't bother me. And to be honest, it still doesn't bother me to this day if a rifle scope is second focal plane. But I will, if I'm buying new optics, and I buy several a year of different sort of price ranges and types, um, I will, if I can, I will go with a um, first focal plane option. So for hunting, and this is personal choices, I'd, I'd generally put a second focal plane scope on. Um, but when it comes to precision shooting or, or long-range target shooting or anything, um, especially at longer distance, um, you're not always um, sort of going to make an impact on your first shot. In fact, not that often at all. Um, everyone will tell you they do, but not from what I see or from what I've experienced. So being at a spot... So you're aiming at the middle of the target, same thing, you hit a metre left and three metres low. You can measure it <clears throat> measure it in your first focal plane reticle, no matter what magnification you're on, and apply a correction. So in that respect, it's great. You can do the same in the second focal plane, but you've got to make sure you're knowing 
you know what magnification you're on and apply the correct conversion if you're on a lower mag or whatever. So it just removes that from the equation and you can potentially give someone a wrong um, or yourself a wrong adjustment for um, making that next shot. So I've gone away from second focal plane for precision. But if, if I am, so I've still got several scopes, if I take one of those rifles out to compete with or use, as long as I remind myself it's second focal plane, I, I don't have an issue. Yeah, I just had to make that same decision too uh, for my 7 mil. I mean, I mean, Zeiss are a sponsor of the show, so people are going to say, oh, you're shooting Zeiss. Well, yeah, I got a good deal on it, and they're pretty good quality. i got a couple of Zeiss scopes, but I've had them long before too that, you know, before people even advertised on the show. But I went 4 to 16, but I don't know if that's going to be, you know, too heavy for me being in a light sort of sport of barrel. I hope it's going to be not too bad. It feels okay so far, but... You know, you, you, you're right, I went second focal plane on that one as well. But I want to talk about, which is very important too, and this is for all, including all brands, really, is how much you're going to spend. Glass, I guess, you know, when I interviewed um, Rick Cristiani from Leica probably a couple of months ago, the, the emergence of different glass, Chinese glass, really coming up quite considerably um, in, mm-hmm. the, in the way they do things and stuff like that. But yeah, some of the mid-range stuff to high-range stuff, I'm really struggling to see the difference, and maybe that's going to be at that, you know, twilight period, both you know, morning and afternoon. But turret tracking is very important in long-range shooting. So, discuss that. How much do we need to spend? Do you think that we're going to get good, accurate turret tracking? What I mean by that is making sure when we dial a correction, it actually goes back to zero when we dial it back to zero. So I've never been much of an optics snob. Uh, plenty of my friends are. If you if you don't shoot what um, they like, they they're not interested whatsoever. But again, it's, it's what <laughs> yeah. you can afford. I'm, I don't think just because you can't afford a night force shouldn't mean you can't put together something a bit cheaper and get out and enjoy yourself. Yep. So uh, I I I do buy a bunch of optics in the sub one thousand dollar category. Um, uh, several reasons. I I. I obviously play with a lot of scopes and different things to put up um, information on the internet. So that's one reason. Um, and I've had things fail and things break and all sorts. Um, but I reckon sort of the sweet spot would be, again, as much as you can afford, but around currently, I reckon around two grand Kiwi. So it's going to be similar Australian. What's that going to be? $1,800 or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. But but the thing is too, there's a bunch of options coming out now. Like you, like you say, Chinese manufacturing is getting vastly improved over what it was a decade ago. Um, so there's tracked optics. I've been following them online a lot, um, stuff like that. You, they, you can, they're selling here anyway. It's, a, it's like $1,200, $1,300. It's a 34-mil tube. Um, it's got like 100 minutes of internal adjustment. It's, it, you know, So a lot of people are curious about those. Vortex have released uh, their new Diamondback just a couple of days ago that's coming out. Everyone's sort of real curious about that. So same thing, uh, 34 formal tube, 56 mil objective, um, heaps of internal adjustment, big knobs, and apparently it's pretty good. And it's meant to be, I think it's going to be around $1,400, $1,500 Kiwi. Um, so there is, I think, it's, it's like everything. It's like TVs, I think, and, and, and iPhones and everything. A lot of the, that technology is getting cheaper to manufacture and so we're getting a lot more features and scopes that used to be prohibitively expensive in the lower end models. Um, so I, yeah, I think around that yeah, fifteen hundred two grand can get you pretty well set up, and you shouldn't have too much issues. I mean, if hey, if you can afford it, buy a Schmidt and Bender or a Carl's or a Night Force or whatever. But um, 
if, if you can't, there is a there is a bunch of options. We're in a golden age of scopes in reality. Um, there's even some options for sub one thousand uh, dollars. I've been playing with for about three, four years now. A it's a Citron STEC four to twenty um, by fifty. I think they're like nine hundred dollars Kiwi. It's yeah. been okay. Um, I've had it on a Magnum for a long time. It tracks well. Uh, at low light, it's not the best, like you say, but um, but it's worked. So, and as yeah, always, people say things. sometimes too, you're always paying the. And this is from a lot of big guys too. Don't forget when you get those expensive brands. And hey, I've got them too. But sometimes you're paying for the, you know, the, the name on the side of it, you know, and there's good companies coming out now that are bringing out really good products. They're trying to compete in the market by bringing you, you know, sometimes if not maybe as good, but maybe a small percentage lower at almost half the cost of some of these more expensive brands. And you are paying for the name sometimes. And I've heard some of these big companies, you're paying 20 to 30% for the, for the marketing fee on top of what they are because they've got a good name, which they've, you know, no doubt they've earned. I, I appreciate that. But, you know, you, sometimes you don't have to spend that sort of money, as you've said, which I agree with, to, you know, get that quality product. There's new companies coming into the market, really want to get in at good prices to make a name for themselves. And some of them are just bloody fantastic. Yeah, yeah definitely. Like I've been playing with a bit uh, over the last sort of years, Athlon Optics. So they're, they're massive in the States, um, but relatively unknown here in New Zealand. But I've been... I've been playing with sort of their highest tier stuff and then their sort of the two steps below it and they've all been great. Um, put a lot of rounds through them. Like their, their, their high end stuff is, is sort of is top end. It's expensive. It's sort of $3,000 plus. But um, I got their smaller Midas tack for my Grendel. Um, I think that was like, I think they're about $1,500. It's fantastic. It's a good scope. Um, it doesn't have all the features everything else does, like you say, but but it's doing the job. Um, I, I could... Um, like I, like I said, I'd love a Schmidt and Bender, but it's five thousand dollars for the one I want. Um, so maybe one day. But, uh, <laughs> Might have to start doing some overtime. <laughs> yeah, and I, I had a kid about a year and a half ago, so I've, I've stopped doing overtime, I'm trying to you know be at home more, <laughs> sort of counterproductive, yeah, yeah, buying more yeah. guns. Interesting, you brought up a little bit earlier too, which I found interesting. Now, long range shooting. Let's go for both hunting. Obviously, and target shooting. So the thirty versus the thirty-four mil tubes. What are you seeing? Obviously, other than internal adjustment, um, things like objective size as well. So you go your fifty mils, your fifty sixes. What do you generally like to shoot? Do you make? Does it make a difference? I've been really enjoying recently. Just probably more my thirty mils for for hunting, and then my thirty fours for my long range shooting type stuff. Just because they're bigger, a bit more cumbersome. But that's my general feeling. But what's generally your feeling? Yeah, I mean the, the higher end sort of. Bigger tube, that thirty-four or six or five, depending what brand. Um, I mean, they're great, but again, they're generally heavier, and so on the range, they're cool. But I, I don't think I'm gonna. So the goal is to hit the target, right? Yeah. If I've got a twenty-five mil tube, a thirty mil tube, a thirty-five, I could probably still hit the target. So it all comes down to sort of what I want. Other than that, so clarity, adjustment, weight. So depending on purpose. So I've, I've I. That my 260, I put a, um, a Zeiss Conquest HD5, and it's only got a 25mm tube. It's the 3 to 15 yeah, right. by 42. So it's yeah. only a small tube, but it's lightweight-ish, you know, because yeah. I don't want that rifle to be really heavy. It's got this sort of nice ultra-clear op- optic, but it's it's only got a small tube, keeps weight down, and it doesn't actually need, being a hunting rifle, doesn't need that infinite adjustment allowed by a 30 
or a 34 millimeter tube. So again, depending on what you want to do, um, if I was building a brand new precision gun for um, competition use, it'd be like a, yeah, 34 mil tube if I could afford it, um, or 30, and then yeah, I'd generally 25 on hunting guns. Yeah, yeah, no, makes sense totally. I want to talk about too in regards to scopes as well. <laughs> I remember years ago, everyone knows I've told this story to death. I, I bought my first. Uh, Deer hunting rifles, a 7 mil 08 many years ago now. <laughs> I put a 6.5 to 24, I think, you know, on it, thinking, well, this is going to be great. You know what I mean? I'm hunting pretty close territory, 100 metres. That's what I need. I need a big, massive scope. So do people generally, you know, overscope their rifles? Do you think, you know, where should they put their magnification, say, for, you know, the long-range hunting and the long-range target shooting? Uh, so I've – so like I said, my little Zeiss is – um, three to fifteen, so that's a really good range for the medium range sort of hunting side of things. Because I can walk around on three power, and so if I, you know, there's a I walk up a track and there's a stag at ten meters, I can um, quite clearly identify them and take the shot. And then if need be, I can go up to fifteen, which fifteen power I could. It's not my ideal setting for long range, but I could still reasonably confidently take a shot at a K on a target. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't say it's the best of both worlds, but it, it, it certainly bridges them well. Um, my rear mag, I run a 4 to 20. Uh, see, oh, the trouble is my eyes aren't particularly good too, so I like a bit of magnification. Um, I know a lot of a lot of guys, they prefer to zoom out a bit. And then, yeah, so it, it's depending on what you're doing. And then precision rifles, you have 5 to 25s or 6 to 24s or something. Um, but if, if, you, if you had to split the difference... And you wanted to use it for hunting, also. I'd, 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 I'd want a bit of lower range magnification, you know, because you, you know, one of the the rules here anyway is identify your target beyond all doubt. And if you're lifting up the rifle scope, you see a deer lift that rifle scope, you just see a big blurry shape, and you pull the trigger. Um, it could potentially be a hunter carrying a dairy shot or, or something silly. So you want to be able to clearly identify that animal. Um, so I'd like to go down to three power for hunting. Here we and go. Then, a good question I didn't ask. Best reasonably priced hunting scope uh, that you think people could go out in the field and get good results with if they want to shoot, you know, those mediums up to five, 600 metres. Oh, I've stumped him again. Yeah, well, just <laughs> Second like, time in the show. <laughs> again, I mean, Zeiss make, a lot of European manufacturers are um, they're slowly catching on to the tactical side of sort of scope features, but a lot of them still centre around hunting sort of orientated scopes. So, yeah, uh, so I've, again, the only real hunting, specifically hunting long-range scope I have experience with personally is the Zeiss would be a good option. But but the, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's what you can afford. Yeah, that's not really a very good answer. But the only one I've got experience is with, with my Zeiss Conquest. Yeah, no worries. Um, varmint barrels, mate. A couple of questions before we finish off. Varmint barrels versus light sporter barrels. Now, I know some people don't like the heavy stuff. Some people don't like the light stuff. What's your thoughts on you know, long-range hunting and obviously target shooting, varmint versus uh, varmint heavy barrels versus sporter barrels? Uh, again, so if you're wanting to hunt, so I'd go down the route of um, – because if I'm hunting longer range, I'm using a magnum. So you generally don't want to be well, – I don't want to be putting a lot of shots in quick succession down a magnum regardless. So so my Browning uh, X-Bolt Hell's Canyon is the speed model. So it's the same barrel length as long range. It's just a smaller profile. Um, you know, less weight. Uh, that's st- it's still pretty accurate for five shots in reasonable succession. And f- so for hunting, that's going to be, unless you're sort of culling animals, that's, you know, a fair number of shots anyway. So 
if, if, if you are wanting to hunt as well, I'd go for a lighter profile barrel. I wouldn't go pencil weight. And if I was overly concerned, I'd go with a carbon wrapped barrel to try and get the best of both worlds. Now that they're becoming very popular. It's interesting you mentioned earlier too, it just came to my mind just then. It is becoming quite popular, isn't it, to you know cut down rifles at the moment, sort of make them in that, you know, I don't know if they call it bullpup or whatever, but just shortening them right down, breaking them, as you said earlier, suppressor. It seems to be quite popular to you know, have a nice you know, slimline rifle that you can manoeuvre around and take out in the field and still get good results. Yeah, dropping velocity, but you still seem to be getting pretty good results. And ultimately, most hunting is really done under a couple of hundred metres anyway. Yes, especially here in New Zealand, it's extremely popular. So they call they call them bush pigs. That's the word I was thinking make. of, not bullpup. All right, can <laughs> cancel that, guys. It wasn't a bullpup. I'm going to sound like a complete idiot. Uh, what do they call it? Bush pig, that's it. Sounds yeah. like. And then, and then the, something that's been popular the last few years is super bush pigs, which is so taking magnum, <laughs> shortening yeah. them down and suppressing them with a big suppressor. And so you the idea being, and also loading them real hot, so you're, you're losing your barrel length, but you've got a bigger cartridge and you're loading it really fast. So you like you know real fast powder or something. So you've got a real powerful short range, um, yeah, super bush pig that's still capable of maybe shooting off some slips at 400 meters or something. And that's been quite popular with like say uh, 280s or rem mags or whatever. Yeah, and then they're putting carbon fiber stocks on them and trying to make them nice and light so they can drag them through the hills or through the bush for days on end. Yeah, I know. It's good stuff. So if you say bush pig over here to a guy, they think they're talking about the the local woman at the pub or something. But <laughs> yeah, that means, It means the same here too. <laughs> oh, does it? Oh, yeah. there you go. There you go. Mate, yeah. um, two questions to finish off. Uh, yeah, factory stocks. Obviously, some of the factory stocks offerings are not the best. We'll still get the job done. But, you know, what do you think about long-range shooting? Because I noticed on some of my rifles when I've got the factory stock, especially one that's got a raised cheek piece, non-factory stock, I mean, like awesome. I've got a couple of GRSs, the new one on the Bagara is awesome too. Once I get that, it's very hard to go back now to a standard factory stock. So what's your thoughts on either adding a factory, or, sorry, an aftermarket stock to a rifle for both, you know, hunting and long-range shooting if, if people can afford it or not necessary? Uh, I, I don't think it'll make you a better hunter. And because see, take a... Everyone goes on. You got to bed your rifles, bed your rifles. But for some reason, nearly every single taker shoots excellent in its factory stock. Um, apart from like, like you said, the T one X with that strange plastic, like pressure bedding under the barrel. So a factory taker is going to shoot excellent. But a lot of guys, what's what's popular here and for the hunting side and long range hunting is now carbon fibre. It's um, shivers. There's probably a dozen different. Um, Outfits in New Zealand custom making carbon fiber um, replacement stocks now um, for all the major brands. So that's that's become super popular and and it's cool. It's lightweight and you can also get the features of um, sort of your traditional sort of um, hunting stock. You might be able to get one with sort of more of a, a pistol grip style stock, not necessarily a freestanding pistol grip, but a you know the ninety degree pistol grip or you can get a, a, a higher cheek put in it for um, running a higher optic so there's all these options now on that side of things and, and you do see a little bit of that transfer over into the um, the precision sort of rifle events a lot of guys will run a really nice um, carbon fiber stock instead of a chassis or um, or something along those lines um, the, the big benefit of the, the chassis systems anyway um, is they're pretty much all well um, got aluminium bedding blocks 
in them. So you, you know, if they're well made, you just bolt it in, and you've got a solid, repeatable um, stock to bolt your action into. And you, you can a lot of the time you will see accuracy increases over some of the cheaper, flimsier stocks. Um, so that one of the big issues with the howlers, I wouldn't call it an issue because they're built to a price point, but the barreled actions are excellent, but the factory hogue stock that the the, the budget models come in is, is extremely flexible, and it's quite when you load the bipod, they um they have a habit of pushing up and touching the barrel, as most people know. So, given your accuracy issues, so you can be careful how you shoot them, um, not to bend the front the fore end too much. Um, so in that case, on those cheaper howlers and 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 that yeah, it can be a real big advantage to um upgrade your your, your stock or, your, or to a chassis. And um, and plus, a lot of it looks really cool. Like a lot of people bag people doing things so they look cool. But hey, it's like a car, man. If you want to paint it or modify it, do it. You know, I, I think chassis look really, really rad, or carbon fiber stocks, or even nice timber. Um, so yeah, do what you want. <laughs> I wish these big manufacturers. I don't know how would do it. Not sure if they do it in New Zealand. I presume they do. But just sell the barrel to action so people can make a decision as to. You know what stock they actually want to put on the rifle. I know how would do it over here, but some yep. of the, a lot of the other brands, you know, you, you're sort of forced if you want to, you know, upgrade after that. You can't really get much, you know, if anything, maybe a hundred, a couple hundred bucks for their stocks at, at absolutely best. But it'd be great if they just sold the barrel action. So if we said, well, if we want to buy the gun as is, we can buy it with you know factory stock. If we don't want to buy it like that, we just buy the barrel action and then maybe save a few hundred bucks. So that can go into you know the the stock that you might want to buy, you know, going forward. Yeah, no, so how I do that um, here also, they have a sort of a build your howler thing on like the, on the um, distrib- um, whoever is um, selling them on their website. You can go on and you can choose what parts you want, essentially. But like you say, I generally, I've actually got two. I've got a, a six millimeter Creedmoor barreled action and a, a 308 barreled action ready to go um, for certain projects that, that are getting different, um, different stocks. Again, and, and instead of like you say, Buying that rifle, throwing all the bits away, you save a couple hundred dollars and just buy what you need. It's um, it's fantastic, and they do sell a lot because of that. Um, it would be nice if, say, Ticker or um, whoever started offering a similar thing, but whether it happens, I don't know. Yeah, and when when you go, I was talking about the the raised cheek piece as well. Like I just put a rail on the seven mag and then some low rings, but I've still got to, it's not that bad. It's not a big deal, but I've still got to sort of, you know, raise my head off the stock a lot more than I'd like. So um, maybe I should have went to the, you know, extra low rings. It's a little bit more than I would like, especially after you're used to having that raised cheek piece. It's a bit of an issue when you're running rails on them, I find, especially with that flat sporter style light stock that comes with most teakers or yeah. you know, the other yeah. rifles yeah. as well. So. I'm having the opposite problem on my 260. I'll put some. Um, I took the rail off to try and the idea. I didn't want the weight. Not that it's heavy, but you know, every bit adds up. And then I got oh, some it. of the Tally one uh, sort of one piece base ring. Yeah, yeah. But I, they were second hand. My mate gave them to me, but they're the, the really really low ones. And so I'm actually having to push my face into the rifle stock. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I'm having to do the opposite. Um, and so they'll be coming off, and I'm either going to put the rail back on and some lure pole rings or something, and then go higher. Um, so I, I, I'm because I shoot a lot of different rifles. I'm not overly picky on where my face sits. If I have to move down towards my chin a little bit, I, I can deal with it. it. I'd prefer to have it sitting nice, but I've never been overly picky with face position. But too low is just it's uncomfortable. And I, when I lift the trouble, trouble is when I lift the rifle, I'm not 
getting my sight picture instantly. Um, so it's re- it really has to change on that 260, that's for sure. And then it comes down to the objective too. Sometimes if you've got a, you know, a 56 or a 50, you've got to use you know, certain height rings, especially if you're on that rail, you might 50 mil, you might have to get into some mediums or something like that. And I know I'm going through that issue a little bit with my 243. I've got the Cytron S3 on there and, you know, I've put medium night force rings on it and then I'm like, oh, you know, maybe a, maybe I might have to get that GRS back out and put it back on on that, on that rifle, make it. Yeah. You know, that yeah that's, I think we've, we've still got this, and whether it's the same over there, um, the older style of shooter in New Zealand, they just, they think you have to have your scope as low to the barrel as possible, like that it's this rule. Um, and in reality, it really doesn't matter that much yeah. um, because of adjustable cheek rises or, or, or whatever. Um, I, I, guess, I guess the original thinking was to keep it more compact for in the bush and less um, centre of scope to bore axis offset for those close shots. But there's so many guys here seem to think that it's like you have to do it or you won't be out of zero or, or you, it'll give you all these... Issues were in reality, whereas it won't. You just don't have correct um, face positioning unless you've got a pad on there or a um, adjustable cheek rest. So trying to explain that to some of the guys who come out and like help set up their rifles that you know they're having to move their scope into a weird position, otherwise it doesn't fit. I'm like, well, if you just put a higher ring on it, you'd have be able to set the eye relief up properly and all that. So getting getting some of those old school habits out can be a bit hard, I find. It's probably one of the hardest things too, like how high do you put your rings? And it's, that's if you buy the wrong ring, sometimes it potentially can cost you a couple hundred bucks making the the wrong decision, especially if they won't if they won't take them back. So it's, it's... it's some manufacturers are good, and they give you a, a a bottom of the inside of the ring to the base measurement, but not all of them yep. do that, and that's good. So you can measure okay from the bottom of where the scope is. It's going to be this far the rail, and that's handy. Um, but like you say, especially if you don't know and you're just getting into it. And, and a lot of um, – New Zealand's got one main um, sort of brand of hunting retailer in New Zealand, and I don't always – whether I should say this. But That's I don't right. Think say it. We love it. We love when people give up information oh, on the show. I, just, I work <laughs> with some of the companies who supply them. But anyway, but the people <laughs> who, who sell the rifles in the shop aren't always very clued up, in my opinion. Um, and it's the opposite in, like, the um, – the mum and pop owned gun shops, the smaller, you know, um, family owned ones, they're generally a lot better for giving advice. But so you'll go into this big retailer and buy a rifle and go, yeah, I need the rings and they'll just give you the fucking rings off the shelf and yeah. off you go. Yeah. And, and it might not work for you. And like you say, then you've got to buy more staff or it's a funny height. Whereas those, those more experienced um, sales, I won't call them salesmen, but shop owners, they're, they actually do shoot a lot and they hunt or they're ex-servicemen or whatever and, and they can point them in the right direction and you're not end up wasting several hundred dollars. It's amazing how, you know, we evolve, isn't it, really? Like I'm 39, so I've been shooting probably 20 years, but really seriously, probably probably only since 2009. So what's that, maybe 10, 11, 12 years now. But it's funny how we change, isn't it? Like what I liked, say, and what I thought was good, you know, 10, 12 years ago is not necessarily what works for me now. Like I said, the overscoping of the rifles or just picking the wrong gear, not being suitable for what I needed, you know, maybe being talked into something that I probably didn't need or want at the time yep. and then going, yeah, that was a bad decision. I should have stuck with what I knew or, but you learn these things too anyway, don't you? You learn how to, what you like then is not what you like now and, and things I may have chosen then don't work for me now that maybe should have worked then or, or similar. Yeah, oh, 100%. Even just um, 
some of the early rifles I, I put in or, or, or accessories I, I added or put on, which I thought were so cool and looked so neat. Now I look back at some pictures and, God, some of it's just terrible looking. It's just everything's changed, even in the last five years, and precision stuff has changed immensely. Um, I was looking back at some old photos of competitions um, from sort of 2016, sort of 17, and, and even just the rifles that you see all the competitors using has just evolved massively. Um, every, every, nearly everything's super flash now, and, and not all of it's overly expensive as well. There's some really good options um, for a couple of grand that you know would just not have been around or possible five, six years ago. Um, so, yeah, it's... It, it is a golden age, like I said earlier, of sort of getting into this thing. You've got YouTube, you've got Facebook, Instagram. You can so you can look up all the stuff you want. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't know what it was like sort of twenty years ago when you wanted to buy something. You'd have to rely on hunting magazines, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's funny how it's evolved, isn't it? Like if you wanted oh, yeah. to find something out or you didn't know, you had to ring a mate and maybe they'd give you some information. Could be good, could be bad, but now you can jump on the net and you have thousands of information. Which sometimes I'm I'm looking at this stuff and it that cripples me in making a decision sometimes too. <laughs> yeah, and you got to find information <laughs> that you can sort of. And this take I find takes a while um, until you learn a few things yourself. But you got to find information that's sort of you consider not trustworthy, but like a reliable source of useful information. Because um, like you say, you can talk to your friends, but they're just going to tell you what they like. Because um, a lot of people will buy stuff and it might not work that well, but because they've spent a lot of money on it, they're never going to admit they shouldn't have bought it. And they'll you know, they'll tell you it's the best thing since sliced bread. Um, same with calibers. We, get, we still have that here with, you know, so and so will go. Yep, two seventy is the only caliber you should use, and it's because his dad shoots two seventy, and then his grandfather shoots two seventy, and so it's all they've ever shot because it's all they've ever known. And, and nothing, I'm not bagging two seventy. It's just what I picked out of my head. But now you can learn a lot more. Well, at least try get some good information from various sources and make a semi-informed decision on your own. Absolutely, mate. To finish off, tell us a story, something that you know stands out in your mind as a great day in Graham Bishop's life. Uh, I'd say to think about this, and I'm going to, it's not me shooting, but it's a friend of mine shooting. We, we went on a trip down south last year, um, myself and two of my good friends. We went into uh, in, into the southern Alps in an area by Lake Tekapo, which is a really popular tourist area, a beautiful area. Like, it's unbelievably stunning down there. Um, and it was a change of plans because we were meant to go to the, the west coast of the South Island, but uh, that is prone to bad weather and the weather come in so we, we head over to the east coast to Tekapo. Anyway we walked in it was about six or seven hours to our hut. Um, myself and my other friend we both shot a bull tar on the way in and then we got to the hut and then my my other friend my good friend who who has a habit, habit of, <laughs> of having he just has bad luck anyway he forgot his ammunition. Oh was no. Back, back in the truck about seven hours away so so he's thinking oh shivers I've, we've just and, and, and Tekapo it's uh, about two days travelling from where we live. You know, it's a long way away, over a ferry across the ocean. Anyway, so next day I said, oh, we'll go out for a walk up this big gully behind the um, the hut. And he said, no, he said, oh, I'll, I'll just come for a walk. And I said, oh, will you come along and and use my rifle um, because I'd already shot something. I did say to him, if I see a really big one, I'll shoot it. But, you know, if it's anything else, you can shoot it. <laughs> if it's trophy anyway, size, we, it's all mine. <laughs> <laughs> we wandered along. um, 
up the so sort of a mountain on either side of us and not very far between them and then a bit of a steep bank on either side and then drop down to a river so we're wandering up and we he saw my friend look back past where we'd come on the other side of the river and he spotted a group of um car up on the mountain side in this incredibly steep hill and um Perfect, you know. Oh, yeah. oh, there's a few bulls there. We look. Oh, cool. And we we're in a bugger of a position, and um, so so we're facing downhill a little bit. There's all these prickly, spiky shrubs around, rocks everywhere. No real good um, position to shoot a high angle shot up at these tar. Um, and he, with all the sort of practice we do with um, practical rifle shooting and practicing on the range and doing awkward shooting. He sort of used his and my backpacks, he extended the bipod legs, he built himself a shooting position. He worked out all his um, dope, adjusted for the angle to give him a true ballistic range. And he, I think it was 380 metres, so not terribly far, but it was a challenging shot considering his position. Um, had a little bit of wind, not a hell of a lot, but a little bit of wind. Um, the, how high he had to have his rifle, because we were leaning, leaning downhill and then shooting onto the opposite angle. And he took the shot and he nailed his tar. And um, I just the reason I talk about that is because it's the, the practice that we do, the competitions, um, all of all of these things sort of come together and allowed him to take this really challenging shot. So if we had to try and <clears throat> if we had to cross the river to get closer, we wouldn't have been able to see them because it would have been too low then, and we didn't have much options. We had to take the shot from where we were, and again, all that practice. He was able to figure out a sort of a solution to the problem, and he took the shot, and he took a reasonable bull tar, um, at, at not a short distance, but not a not a super long one either. And then within an end, had to climb up the hill and find this thing. It was pretty wicked. It was just a real cool experience um, with one of my mates, and he took a really really cool shot, and it all worked out for him. Yeah, no, it's good. It's always good when you get that, you know, that good size animal or it's a good experience. Nothing better, man, than looking back on some of those, you know, good experiences. I'm sure you, yeah, we've all had plenty of them. You know, over the years, and uh, I mm. certainly have. I'm sure you have too. So, but maybe people want to yeah. get in contact with you. How do they like Taranaki Long Range Shooting social media? Maybe you know, if they want to ask yeah, that, maybe a question, the if they could. Taranaki Long Range Shooting um, face, Facebook, like I said, it's where 95 percent of our stuff is. Um, it's on Instagram, but again, I put most of my effort into um, Facebook because then it's sort of more New Zealand specific um, rather than Instagram being a bit more global, uh, and a little bit on YouTube. But again, yeah, Facebook Taranaki Long Range Shooting. Um, You'll see plenty of uh, stuff on there. I try to do minimum of one sort of post a day. Uh, while we're in lockdown, I do two just to keep everyone entertained because I'm obviously lucky enough to shoot every day. Um, yeah, that's the way, Terry Long Range Shooting, man. Look us up. All right, Graham Bishop joins me here on AHP uh, talking about long-range shooting, optics, uh, all different types of rifles from factory, scopes, you name it. Uh, we're talking about it. So, Graham, thanks for coming on the show, mate. I really appreciate sharing your knowledge. Thanks. All right, thanks very much, mate. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.